electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center, the return of the fangs, why Jim Cramer says that trade is back in a big way. But can you really trust the bounce? Big question. We'll debate it with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, the CEO and portfolio manager, Gilman Hill Asset Management. Liz Young is the head of investment strategy at SoFi. Josh Brown, Farmer Jim Labenthal alongside. Good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall. It's a different picture now than what it was earlier because now we're in the red on the Dow and the S&P. The Nasdaq's given up almost all of its gain as well. So it was fun while it lasted. Russell's negative. 157 is the yield on the 10-year. Josh, you know, we're going to lead in with the fact that the fangs have gotten a nice bounce over the past week. And before we can even get the words out of our mouth, they've almost all gone negative. Nasdaq's teetering. The overall market's gone negative. What gives? It's a pretty quiet market today. And I I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize most of what we're seeing here as like stocks being brutally beaten up. Or I mean, you're talking about pennies in most of these names that I'm looking at. But um, I want to highlight something that I think is really important here. Uh, I talked about Alphabet last year as being my pick for the best recovery play. A lot of that was because people often Google activities before they pursue them. And travel is like 8% of Google's ad revenue. Even though they don't break it out, that's what analysts think it was. And of course, travel inquiries on the web have absolutely exploded. And Google's the best performing fang. The stock's up 37% year to date. Um, Just an absolute home run if you were involved in the first half of 2021. Which has me thinking about the second half. And I'm still going to be long alphabet and I'm still bullish Google. Uh, I think there's a lot more to the story that can continue to work. I'm really starting to get excited about the setup in Amazon. Mm. Why don't we throw that chart up real quick so I can tell the viewers why. Okay, let's see the chart. Let's take a look at this. Okay. We like consolidation. If we're thinking about technicals and technicals, I mean, you're talking about price and price is truth. Everything else is narrative. What we're seeing in the technicals here is what's called the consolidation period, otherwise known as a base And there's a truism in technical analysis, which is that the bigger the base, the bigger the space. Once we finally see a breakout from that um, consolidation, the base that's been built here dates back to August of 2020. Absolutely no forward progress since then. But the stock's not exactly falling either. It's pretty much a straight line from last summer. That makes sense. It had a huge run up in the early part of 2020, one of the top performing large cap stocks. But now what I'm starting to see um, is a tightening of the range. And a tightening of the range typically is what precedes either an upside or a downside breakout. So I think the breakout is to the upside once this consolidation period resolves. Amazon has one of the best fundamental setups in addition to that technical picture. Wall Street analysts 
uh, are anywhere from 4,000 to 5,500, uh, the bulls on the stock, some big firms covering it. Uh, that, would, that would be an explosive move higher. I don't need it to do 5,500, um, but I do think this could be a 20% growth story between now and the end of the year based on both the technicals and the fundamentals. And I think the idea that this is like a work from home stock or whatever, that's gradually being, being murdered in its sleep. Nobody's really saying that anymore. The new idea is that Amazon is ready uh, for the reopen and, and beyond. And I think the stock's going to go. All right. So Liz Young, that very much sounds to me like Josh agrees with Jim Cramer, who said this bigger trade, which had consolidated and it had stagnated, is about to get going again. Uh, over the past week alone, Facebook's up 5.5%, right? Apple's been the epitome of the sideways mega cap. It's 1.5% up over the last week, so at least it's going in the right direction. Josh's point about Amazon. Then you have Alphabet, which is up 4.5%. Netflix, which I don't really put in this category, but nonetheless will mention it's up 3%. Microsoft is up 3.5%. Are NVIDIA. Those stock- yeah, well, NVIDIA. We'll talk about that, too. But are these stocks about to get moving again? Because that would be massive for the market, wouldn't it? It would be massive for the market because I think investors look at these FANG stocks and just big tech in general as their indication of sentiment. If FANG is doing well and if tech is doing well, people feel a lot better about the market overall. What I think is going to happen, now first of all, I want to caveat this by saying I I don't think they're monolithic. I don't think every FANG stock is going to behave the same way. And to Josh's point, there's going to be ones that probably do well and others that don't do as well. But what I do think is going to happen over the next couple months is we're going to see a repeat of this pattern. We have this scare in inflation. It hurts high growth stocks. They pull back. People realize that that might be a buying opportunity. They buy them. And then we see a little rally. I think that's going to happen two more times as we get inflation numbers for May and June. And then the second half of the year, I still think we're going to be okay in the market. I think we can eke out some gains, but it's going to feel very hard earned. Honestly, what I think it's going to feel like by the end of the year is like a year where you work really, really hard in your job and you think you put in more time than ever before and you get to the end and your boss says you met expectations. I think that's what the market's going to feel like this year. Farmer Jim, um, the NASDAQ 100's up three of the past four days. Why? No big surprise, because those stocks are moving again. Apple's weighting is 11%, 8.5% for Amazon. Microsoft is nearly 10%, and you get the picture. Do you, do you feel, Farmer Jim, like these stocks are going to be players again? Yeah, they are, just not for the next two or three weeks. Why? Um, so I, I completely agree with I mean, I'm just saying these Josh. things are moving again. And what with, do you mean for the next yeah, two to yeah, three no. weeks? I think we're sideways. I think we're stuck for the next two to three weeks. Here's why. Okay, you've got nothing fundamental coming up in the next two to three weeks. You don't even get into pre-announcement season until the second half of June. Um, Certainly not earnings season. In the next few weeks, you're going to see no resolution on what taxes are going to be next year. You're not going to get any resolution on whether inflation is transitory or entrenched. There's just nothing that's going to be resolved fundamentally in the next two to three weeks. So in that environment, you look to technicals. And I'm not saying I'm a chartist, you know, but I do know enough about technicals to look at where the index is, the S&P 500 versus its 200-day moving average. It's 11% higher. Now, that doesn't mean the market's going down 11%, but those two are going to meet up at some point in time. The index is going to meet up with its 200-day moving average. I would guess that for the next three weeks, we're sideways to slightly down, like 3 4%. Uh, the, the moving average comes up. 
But it is very hard. In the absence of fundamentals, it's very hard to make the case for a roaring bull market or even any tepid bull market to start from where we are now. But here's the good news, Scott. Here's the good news, all right? We are almost, you know, almost halfway through the year. We've got great earnings. That's likely to continue. We will get resolution on those big macroeconomic uh, factors. So when you get to the end of this year, I think, and I've been saying this all along, stocks like Apple, stocks like Amazon, stocks like Google, Microsoft are going to set new highs. You know I think we'll see 150 on Apple before the end of the year. Yeah, but That's you're a nice 20% return from here. You're raining on the reform brokers parade here. You're, you're saying that the FANG don't believe no, the hype. Yes, yeah, you are. They said I'm they're not going to go anywhere wait. for the he's next few weeks. Wait. But they just started moving again. Yeah. TRB? Scott, wait a second. TRB. I agree. Listen, no, Josh, I agree with Josh is not up. that short term. TRB. I agree. I agree with Jim. I, I don't I don't know that we're going to get I don't know that we're going to get a resolution uh, in the, the consolidation. I was talking about in Amazon. I don't know that the, that, that that resolves in the next two weeks. Um, so I, I don't think that Jim and I are, are definitively on opposite sides. I would just say that it might take some people by surprise if the breakout does happen. But who cares about two? You know what could go on in two weeks? Like literally anything. So. Uh, I feel like we shouldn't be overly focused on, uh, you know, the next the next month, the next two weeks. It's not really that important for most investors. Okay, Jenny Harrington, weigh in. I'll make in. this one point strongly. Okay. Go, go ahead, Farmer Jim, and one, then Jenny's going to get in. One strong point: don't don't be underinvested. Okay, if you have cash right now, the next two to three weeks, pick your spots. This is the time to get invested for the second half of the year. Jenny Harrington. Nice to see you today. So, so there's been a lot of technical talk um, so far, and there's been a lot of short-term talk. But, you know, I always look at valuations, and I always look longer term. So what I think is, and there's a chart, if, um, if you guys can put it up, it would be terrific. But what I see is that the valuation premium of growth stocks, and especially the FANG stocks, is still significantly outsized relative to the valuations of the, of the value stocks relative to long-term history. So if you believe that there is mean reversion, then I think that there's a long way to go where FANG will not outperform the broader market on a relative basis. That might mean that they're fine, right? But they may not be great and they may not be great on a relative basis. So what you see coming is you see FANG and growth at elevated historic valuations. And you also see that in 2021, value stocks earnings growth is actually going to exceed growth stocks earnings growth. So in 2021, value stocks earnings growth is expected to come in around 34%, growth stocks around 24%. So I think those are all working for you to continue this leadership rotation. I do not think that this is, you know, when you say, oh, Apple's up 3%, like, whoa, big deal. It's still down significantly from its high. It's not up much on the year. Tech is still lagging on the year. I don't think that this is the beginning of something. I know I'm probably in risky territory going against both the reform broker and Kramer, but I'm comfortable doing that and I'm pretty confident. I think as a portfolio manager, one of the challenges is, is that you need to be a historian as well as a futurist. So you need to look backwards and look at what those historical valuations have been, but you also need to look forward. And when we look forward, we see that the growth rates of the growth stocks, again, are not going to outperform the growth rates of the value stocks. So that's where I come out. Maybe valuation, valuation metrics are you, what valuation metrics are you basing that, um, that premium? Uh, are you, are you, like, so you, are you looking look at, at uh, trailing 12 yeah. months earnings? No, so you okay. can look at a bunch can I, of different charts. Can I share something charts? with you, Jen, fact, Jenny? Can I share something on, with you? Hold on, Josh. Jo hold on, Josh. Hold on. Hang on. Sorry. Josh, you asked Jenny a question. Okay. Give her a chance at least to answer it, and then, of course, you can do that. Thanks. Go ahead, Jenny. She's, 
so she said earnings. Know, is it okay. possible to put this slide up? Because you can look at JP Morgan has a great one where they go back to 1985 and they show on theirs they use like Russell 80th decile versus Russell 20th decile. Or maybe JP Morgan uses S&P, sorry. Credit Suisse uses Russell 1000 80th decile versus, there you go. This one's from Credit Suisse. And this shows Russell growth's PE, um, relative PE to value P, sorry, growth PE to value PE. And what you see is that's extended. You can also look at Ed Yardeni puts out a similar slide and you see that, it's, that growth is massively overvalued relative to the, how it traded relative to tech. So you can look at a whole bunch, you can look at S&P, you can look at Russell, you can look at um, value, versus growth, you can look at 80th versus 20th decile, and they all show the same thing, which is that relative to history, the valuations are very extended, even after the past eight months where values had a big run. Okay, Mr. Brown. I just, well, Dr. I just Mike. want to bring out the fact that, uh, <laughs> I just want to bring out the fact that if we're, <laughs> if we're looking at this, this uh, gap in valuation for value versus growth on a historic basis, the world has significantly changed, and P.E. ratio might have been one of the most useless uh, measures of forward performance over the last 10 years. So you can make the case that that will revert for some unknown mystical reason, and maybe that'll turn out to be true. But here's what's also true. In 2014, Amazon was selling at 850 times trailing 12 months earnings. In 2015, 545 times. In 2016, 152 times. Right now, it's 60 times trailing 12 months earnings. The entire 1,500% run in Amazon, there were people looking at things like trailing 12 months earnings to make a judgment call on whether the stock was worth buying. They could not have been more wrong. In fact, it might have been one of the biggest investment errors you could have possibly made in the last 10 years uh, in a portfolio. Because the same goes for Netflix. And the same goes for Shopify. And the same goes for, I could name 50 companies that have been trading over the last five years that have traded at substantially elevated trailing 12 months. And so the question you might have to ask yourself, Jenny, and anyone else listening is, is it possible that this metric that I'm very focused on in my stock selection, is it possible that this isn't really something that tells me anything about A, whether or not a company is appropriately valued in the market, and B, where it could be going in the future. Is it at all possible that valuation metrics that we've obsessed over since the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, really don't matter that much in reality in the modern era? Is that a, a, even a 5% possibility? Jenny, I'll give you the They've last word on that. I want, to switch, six months. I, I want to I want yeah. to switch the conversation in a second to, to what I, another item I think is important to, to talk about. Jenny, go ahead. Just just be quick for me, please. Sure. This is where Josh, you and I frequently get into does valuation matter? And I think that there's dozens of different valuation metrics that you can use. And I think you should. I think for the sake of ease on TV, we refer to P.E. But the bottom line is that valuation always matters and that company's ability to produce cash and be earnings positive over time always matters in the long run. Now let me ask you you guys Agreed. this. Does does anybody think that a massive rebalance in a huge ETF which is coming this week has had anything to do with the weakness we've seen in technology? The MTUM, okay? That's the iShares uh, ETF from BlackRock. We we've, we've talked about that and people have invested in that. 
on this show. It's going to see 68% of its holdings reshuffled. According to Wells Fargo, that is coming this week. Tech goes from 40% to 17%. Financials go from 2% to a third of the portfolio. It's a $16 billion fund. My question is this. Was there anticipation of this coming, which led to some rebalancing of portfolios from people who wanted to switch things up? And has that had an impact, Liz Young, on why tech has traded the way it has? I don't think that particular ETF is the reason that we've seen tech change direction or, or financials change direction. I think this had a lot more to do with the macro picture. But I do think that that rebalance will affect the market for a couple days. And I just I'm going to make one comment about valuations, because I think I think we overly focus on valuations. They do matter in the long term. I just don't think most investors have the stomach to sit around and wait for that long term to come true. They matter over a 10 year period, but they don't matter over a 10 day period. And they're a really tough thing to look at as a timing mechanism. So I don't I really don't want anybody to overly focus on the valuation. Josh Brown. If a $16 billion ETF is reshuffling its, its focus, they've held on to the fangs too long, right? They, they, were, they held on to mega caps for too long, and their performance suffered as a result of that. If that's going to change this week, and you have the kind of rebalance that I just told you was going to happen from the percentage changes that we are to expect any day between now and likely on, on Thursday, you could say, OK, well, maybe there's been some anticipation of that in the market. Or, as Liz Young said, maybe it comes afterwards. Maybe you're going to see moves that are, that are made that are going to impact the market for a couple of days based on this reshuffle. What do you think? Well, I think there's probably a lot of noise um, surrounding this type of thing. But it probably doesn't matter for people that are willing to look beyond the week of these, these types of reshufflings. Uh, I do think that a momentum ETF, by definition, is the ultimate example of driving while looking through the rearview um, windshield. You're, you're basically buying whatever has just worked the most. But the important thing to understand is every one of these ETFs that's focused on momentum, unless they're active, they have a set of rules about when they will do portfolio reconstitutions. So this is not a rebound. It's a reconstitution. New names come in based on what's outperformed. Old names go out. The thing is, there are, there are many very sophisticated participants in the market that are actively arbitraging things like ETFs, especially the ones that publish their rules uh, in advance. So I don't know that there's going to be a huge effect. Arguably, we've probably already seen most of it. Um, software algorithms, they're very... Uh, well-tuned to how these things work, when sure. the trades are going to take place, what the opportunities might be. So I think if you're a human, uh, just say to yourself, the, the world is a mysterious place. Things happen. Um, I can't always control them. Um, unless, um, unless, and that, that's why I would throw that out there. Unless, Farmer Jim, you, you look at it and say, well, maybe, okay, yes, they, they're, they're getting into things that have already moved a lot, but maybe the momentum is strong enough to carry it even further and maybe you need to look within your own book, wherever you're playing and however you're playing the stock market right now, and decide you need to do the same, that you've been sitting in some of these tech stocks for too long, hoping for a big rebound. And the real momentum has now switched to another track. And that train's going to run for a long time. 
Well, I think the momentum has shifted. Um, you know, as far as this ETF goes, it's very hard to say what's the tail and what's the dog. And frankly, nobody, you know, Jenny and I, we run in the same sort of investment management crowd. Nobody that I know talks about what the MTUM is doing or rebalancing. We talk about earnings. I don't need to go back to the prior conversation, but the reason to be in these financials, these industrials, these energy stocks is because what's going on with their earnings? Their earnings are growing very rapidly. That's where the earnings growth is. That's why these share prices are and should be and will be going higher. Names like, I don't know, value plays with momentum, uh, sure. Live Nation, sure. Josh Brown. Yeah. Right? They're 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 telling CNBC their their concert Let's bookings are are strong. Thank you very much. I mean, we could have figured that, which is why Josh, you told us more than 6 8 or whatever how many months ago it was that this was one of your picks. Yeah, I think it's a $100 stock minimum. I'm hanging on. I know it's had a really good week or two uh, as continued concert announcements have come out and sellouts have been announced. I, I don't think it's over. This is still a sub $20 billion market cap for a company that effectively uh, controls, with one other real competitor, controls uh, the Western world's concert going experience. Um, so I, I, I'm still bullish there. Jenny Harrington, materials, the third best performing sector this year. Financials, financials, excuse me, the second best performing sector this year. We just talked about a rotation taking place within a momentum ETF. What do you think about these positions, if you have any in these spaces? Well, this goes back to a conversation that we were having in January and February, where I was saying, when we get to March, the momentum metrics are going to really switch and they're going to favor exactly those materials, financials, energy. I also think with respect to this one fund, we need to remember that it's $16 billion. And I was just Googling and trying to look up what the average daily trading volume is. The only thing I could find was that it was $170 billion a day in um, 2013. So I'd imagine that it's multiples of that now. I think this is a tiny drop in the bucket for this fund. But to Josh's point, it is momentum funds are always backward looking in that way. And so I think we've already seen a lot of probably other funds get ahead of that, not because they were anticipating this, but because the momentum has been shifting really since March when in 2020 financials, materials, energy, the like all bottomed in a really disproportionate way. So the numbers a year later just look really favorable from a momentum perspective. And yes, I do think that that will continue. Sure. I mean, They're it's still it's, cheap. They're still compelling. It, it's anecdotal, obviously. And, and, and nobody has not everybody, I should say, ha has the gift of, of being early or right on the money in terms of what their timing is. Tell me why you sold Jenny Sherwin Williams and what 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 the statement sure. is there, if, if any specific, you know, bigger picture thing. Yeah, so it is. So it's we also sold Home Depot, by the way. We sold Sherwin Williams last week and we sold Home Depot two weeks ago. And the thought process was the same for both of them. And frankly, the thought process was the same for why we weren't surprised by Apple and Netflix, which was to say that a lot of earnings were pulled forward. And in Sherwin Williams's case, we were looking at a stock that was trading at 29 times earnings, which we thought might be peak earnings, because when we look back over the past year, we see that that a lot's gone into that, right? Stimulus checks that won't be there in, in anymore. Um, people have been homebound doing stuff on their own. That's going away. And then there's been no travel, no vacation, no concerts, no nothing. So we think that fed the earnings and that the share price of both Home Depot and Sherwin-Williams were really reflecting the best case scenario. We know that they're going to have great numbers this summer, but we think that's reflected in the stock. In so, other, yeah, we yeah. sold them both. Who was that? Did somebody say something? No, I guess I'm hearing. I guess I'm hearing things. I was gonna. I thought that was you, Farmer Jim. I was gonna say in in other news uh, before before we take a break, Scott Minard 
tells CNBC that he thinks there's going to be a big pullback, maybe 10% correction, and then a big bounce. The S&P goes to 5,000 or possibly even higher than that. Um, I know a lot of people think that maybe we're going to have this correction and maybe the action that we see in the market, Jim, with no traction from day to day is foretelling that. Yeah. I, I think the question is how big of a drop before it goes higher. So I agree with Mr. Minard that we are going higher. 5,000, you know, maybe by 2023, sure. I don't think that's unreasonable. The question is how big of a drop until then. And with interest rates where they are, I just don't see greater than a 5% drop. And I mean, look at where 10 years today. I'm not looking at exactly this moment, but I think it was 160 last I looked. Bottom line is the Fed is still very much supporting this market. That will change, but not anytime soon. And as long as they're supporting it, I don't see the market going down more than 5%. Well, it's, it's, al it's, also, it's, it's also not so much, Jim, about where inflation or rates are today. It's a forecast that one year from now, it's not going to be where people think it's going to be in terms of it's not, he doesn't think it's going to be as high as some people think, which is why you get to 5,000 or beyond. That, that enables you well, to get to that level in the first place after what he thinks could be a 10% pullback, which is going to feel pretty damaging from 41.99, where the S&P is sitting as we have this conversation. I just don't see it. I just don't see how you get a 10% pullback, not just with what I said about the Fed, but with where earnings are. I mean, we don't need to go through the, uh, the numbers, but first quarter was beyond blowout. We're two-thirds of the way through this quarter, and it looks pretty darn good. Let me ask you a good. question. Let me ask I just you a don't question. see how in this earnings picture. Let me ask you a question, yeah, okay, because I'll play right off that. Yeah, earnings were great. Yep. What stocks do? Did stocks live up to where the earnings were? No, we're, we're having a, now we're having a discussion about facts, okay? And we're, that's different than projecting what the next few months are going to be. No, but Scott you're telling, you're telling, me, earning, you're telling me you're telling I me earnings no. are so good. You're telling me earnings have been so good and are going to be so good that's going to carry the market higher. Scott, I just told you that Scott, we just got out of an earnings season that was gangbusters, Scott, fabulous, and the market Scott, wasn't able stop, to do that much. Stop. Scott, calm down. We're 1% from an all-time high on the S&P 500, okay? <laughs> this is not a market that looks like it's going down 10%. It just doesn't. Throw the 10% out. Let's not you and I argue, okay? It's, we're not arguing. Let's, and and I didn't say 10%. Minor said 10%. Which Scott are you telling to good, stop? Maybe you should be him. talking to Minor, not me. <laughs> Whoever's he saying 10%, too. I don't care. just stop. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. We're going to take Yo, a quick keep in mind we had keep in mind that we had a correction in the most excessively um, overbought areas of the market. You, the average SPAC went from selling at a premium of 30 to 50 percent or something like that to a, a, a deficit, a negative versus the cash on their balance sheets. Look what they did with like Lordstown Motors and Neo and all the electric vehicle stocks. Yeah, canoe. And cryptos. Uh, look, look what. Crypto is like you ha you already had this sub Rosa correction exactly where it should have taken place. I don't think that correction needs to hit JP Morgan and Caterpillar. It needed to hit a lot of these areas. And believe me, the damage has been done. I think it's it's fair to say we've experienced the correction where we should have already. All right. All right. All right. Good way to end it. Uh, good points made by all. Uh, take a quick break. Come back. Bill Ackman, he's speaking with investors in the past hour. Who else? Leslie Picker. She's listening in and has the highlights for us coming up. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We are back on the half in two. 
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. For the first time, the Department of Homeland Security is preparing cybersecurity regulations for pipeline operators. The move comes after the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. That pipeline supplies fuel across much of the East Coast. U.S. health officials say that COVID infections remain rare among people who are fully vaccinated. Through the end of April, the CDC says that it has identified just over 10,000 cases among people who have received their shots, a group that included more than 101 million Americans at that point. And European Union leaders say that they have reached an agreement on digital travel certificates that would track COVID vaccinations and help resume travel on the continent. The EU plans to have the system up and running by July 1st. Scott, you're now up to date. I'll send it back to you. Okay, Rahel Solomon, thank you very much. Hedge fund titan Bill Ackman, he is speaking with investors as we speak. Leslie Picker following the money, listening in. What's he saying, Les? Hey, Scott, that's right. Call just ended. Bill Ackman providing a first quarter update for investors. Going through each of his portfolio companies, as he usually does, providing an update when he will on uh, to update the market about his SPAC. And he also shared some thoughts on inflation and Archegos. Now, as for his portfolio, the big news was really around uh, this stake in Domino's. Of course, Pershing Square was up about 7% in the first quarter, and the company added that new position around $330 a share, which if you track that back, it's about February. Uh, but we did talk about that, of course, two weeks ago on Halftime Report. Uh, Ackman noted that the firm has a, quote, perfect track record in the restaurant space and the decision to trade Starbucks to acquire Domino's shares was largely based on valuation. Now, he also spoke about his SPAC, Pershing Square Tontine, which is lower today, but still trading almost one and a half times its net asset value. He reiterated today that he's still in the midst of merger talks. Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. Uh, I commented a number, a couple, I don't know, a week or so ago, uh, there really has no change here and that we have we started working on a transaction in actually early November. Uh, we've done our homework. Uh, we like the business. We love the management team. And we are working to complete a transaction, uh, I said, within weeks. Now, Ackman noted that if that transaction does not happen, he will make an announcement so that investors are informed with respect to hedging, and then he will move on to the next potential target. Now, speaking of hedging, Ackman had purchased interest rate swaps in December and today provided some updated thoughts on where he sees inflation. Now, he believes that all the government stimulus combined with monetary policy stimulus and unspent savings has the potential to create a, quote, fairly significant increase in prices, inflation, and ultimately higher rates. Those were his words. Now, the firm chose to hedge that, by, hedge that rate by purchasing options that pay off in an asymmetric way and extend into the summer of next year. Still, he notes that he believes the companies in which he's invested in, a lot of consumer-facing companies, can pass on any price increases. We hope that all of our businesses are businesses that can pass along increase in prices. If you have a, a, a great company, a desirable brand, great products, you know, a, a wonderful service. Uh, ideally, you should be able to. Uh, we don't like investing in commodity businesses where you're a price taker. We like businesses where you can, in fact, cover increases in costs uh, with 
you know, demand from customers and higher prices. Now, this was kind of a wild card. There was also a question on Archegos and whether that changes his desire to acquire positions using total return swaps, which he tends to do so that the market isn't necessarily aware as he's building that position and affecting uh, the price as he's trying to build that position bigger. Now, he said no, that the Archegos situation uh, involved a lot more leverage than he usually does uh, within his portfolio and as he's acquiring these stakes. Scott. The interesting part, as you said, um, was the you know, the move out of Starbucks mm-hmm. and into Domino's and like everybody else trying to figure out where inflation's going and the ability to pass on costs. Let me just stay with me, Les. I want to bring in Josh Brown into the conversation. Josh, because you're a Starbucks shareholder. Uh, I believe you still are. I'm wondering what you make of the fact yeah. that he's out, he's into Domino's, and I don't know what you think about that company specifically, but you do have other restaurant or food-related plays in your book, too. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's interesting. There's a there's a school of thought out there that Starbucks has uh, done an excellent job in recovering from the pandemic. But then there's this possibility that they can hit a wall because so many of their locations are not just uh, revolving around, uh, you know, people feeling like having a coffee, but they really do need like the business commuter and the business traveler to get back everything that they've lost. Like there are certain locations they have that either you have to close them or they're going to be much lower volume locations. So I I am sympathetic to that idea that you've seen the best of what you'll see out of Starbucks for the recovery. And now the growth rate will slow back down that they've regained much of what's been lost. I think that's premature. So it's not that Domino's won't outperform Starbucks in the next quarter or two. You know, Mr. Ackman is being judged on a different time frame than people that are managing their own portfolios. So he may just have a reason to think one will do better in the more intermediate term than the other. Uh, but I think both can work, and I'm sticking with my Starbucks position. Leslie, before uh, it's, done, it's done very well for me, and I think there's more. Sorry, sorry, Josh. Um, Leslie, by my count, what do we got? We got two, two years plus now one quarter of uh, a pretty big rebound. Right. Yeah. Uh, for Bill Ackman. Where where are we? Do you know in terms of high watermark charging fees again? What, what can you tell me about that? Yeah. Yeah. They, they surpassed their high watermark. I want to say the year before last year okay. uh, and were able to charge fees again. If not then, then it was last year that they were indeed able to start charging fees again. Because if you recall, they had a couple of years where it was double digit declines um, and even single digit declines. And so it took a while to kind of get that momentum back. Part of it had to do with the fact that we haven't really seen Ackman doing much of that bread and butter activism that we're so used to seeing him doing ever since he's stuck to this kind of stock picking strategy. And he's got this back that he's working on. The returns have been pretty solid. Yeah. Good stuff. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Up next, Florida Panthers owner Vinny Viola is with us, the president and CEO as well for a halftime exclusive. We'll talk their new venture. Of course, we'll talk with Vinny about the markets as well. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Well, for our next guest, owning a professional sports franchise means more than just trying to win championships. It's about serving the community where his team plays. Vinny Viola, the owner and chairman of the Florida Panthers, he is spearheading a $65 million renovation of Fort Lauderdale's War Memorial Auditorium. Vinny is with us today, along with team president and CEO Matt Caldwell. Guys, good to see you. Been a while. Always good to be with you, Scott. All right, Caldwell, Pleasure. Caldwell looks like he's at a league press conference or something. Vinny, I'm going to start with you. You're the, guy, you're, the, you're the guy who signs the checks. Um, by the way, great win last night. I know that's why the smiles are so big today. Um, this is already underway, right, Vinny? What is this going to mean to the community? I, it's just unlimited. The potential for this renovated facility and the hockey uh, practice facility as well medical facilities that will be attached to both the entertainment venue, the hockey venue. It means that the community is placed kind of in the Central Park equivalent of Fort Lauderdale, will have access to a great sport in an unlimited fashion, but it will also bring in to the community a wide range of entertainment, some of it borne up and created within the community, and some obviously professional uh, acts. It means that the team particularly, and the teams are so important to their cities, more so now than ever, the team will be connected directly to the fans in the central location of Fort Lauderdale like no time before. Which, Matt, I mean, Matt, talk about a hockey, a sudden hockey hotbed. Uh, you know, yeah, you guys sure and the Lightning are, are playing one another. So the spotlight is on hockey down in that state. So no, no wonder you guys are investing further, further out. Yeah, no, thanks for noticing that. And, and, and then he started this project a few years back. And it's great to see this rivalry that's starting with Tampa Bay Lightning. And the playoff series has been electric. Uh, many people have told me game one was one of the best games they've watched in a while. Last night was an incredible win. So we're really excited for the game. We're excited for the state of Florida that there's so much attention on on this series. And this project is is perfect for us and in investing in the community, bringing youth hockey to downtown Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and as Vinny mentioned, bringing entertainment. We're going to have live music as well. We're partnering uh, with Live Nation to, to book the music venue and then partnering with Baptist Health uh, for our Iceplex. So. We couldn't be more excited. When do you plan to open? What we just saw on the screen was a pretty uh, spectacular looking facility. Yeah, so next summer, so June of 2022. So Vinny, his whole family is very invested. We have our construction uh, company working on it, uh, working closely with a a general contractor. We've already broken ground. 
this afternoon. We have a nice ceremony uh, talking more about the project on site, but we'll be opening up in about a year. Vinny, speaking of investing, how's the world look to you these days? Uh, it's been a bit of a volatile environment, to say the least. Commodities, which you pay awfully uh, close attention to uh, from your past life, have been a big mover, and we're thinking about inflation. So what, what do you see? Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I, I see a, uh, a, a political accommodation and on this common understanding around the markets and the role that the government serves around money supply, I feel that we will get additional stimulus that will be responsible and bipartisan. And I think that drives the uh, confidence of the everyday participant in the marketplace. So I'm very optimistic. I, I see the markets poised to reach new levels. Uh, and I would say that the current imbalances that are perceived are really just a matter of timing around our exits from uh, conditions of COVID. Uh, I don't see inflation as much of a threat as others do. Mm. Because I think the uh, creative quotient that defines any economy is increasing and accelerating at rates that, quite frankly, we have not seen before. And I think the ability to consume and the ease of consumption, which drives all modern capital structures, has never been as efficient as it currently is. So it's a little bit of a hand-waving answer. But here's, here's what I would say. You have a stable political environment. You have an extraordinarily accessible and mobile consumer class. And you have efficiencies around supply chain and creativity. So the balance is prime for growth. That's how I see the economy. Uh, I'm actually very bullish. That's good to hear. I don't I, I don't I don't see inflation quite uh, by my measure measures of inflation quite as threatening uh, as as others. It's good to see both of you again. Good luck in game six. We'll see if this thing can go to a game seven. Matt Caldwell, Vinny Viola. We'll talk to you both soon. Scott, thank you very much. I miss, uh, I miss seeing you in person. We will do that soon. Thank look, you. Look forward to it very thanks, much Matt. so. Vinny, thanks, right. Matt, to you as well. Ask Halftime is next. Send your questions by video. We'll play them on the air. We're back right after this. CNBC's first NFT is still up for grabs. We're honoring the Mark Haynes bottom, highlighting the day he said the S&P 500 had hit a low during the depths of the financial crisis. It's really one of the best market calls ever. The auction opened until 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday. If you don't want to participate in that auction, we also have a set number of NFTs going at a fixed price. So this might be a good way to explore this new kind of investment we've talked so much about. All proceeds, most importantly, go to Autism Speaks, a favorite charity of Mark's, and the Council for Economic Education, which focuses on financial literacy. It's all up now, mintable.app slash CNBC. It's a carbon neutral event. As we've been telling you, we're purchasing carbon offset credits from a firm called Ariel to make sure we have no negative impact on the environment. And by the way, Mark Cuban is leading the bidding as we speak. 
with 10 Ethereum. That's about $26,000. Maybe we need a full-blown Shark Tank bidding war. Hello, other people. Let's see what happens. Our experts are answering, answering your questions next and Ask Halftime. We're back right after this. Time for Ask Halftime. Liz Young, a video question for you. Let's take a look. Hey, Halftime Report crew. With the rise of sports betting and everyone getting involved, do you think it's safer to bet on bets, B-E-T-Z, or is there a single player that you really think stands out? Okay. Mark from New York. Liz, what's the answer? Hi, Mark. I do think that investing in something that has a diversified portfolio and that's tracking an index is better than choosing one single security and taking that risk. I also think that this industry is only going up. Everybody is so excited about it, and it's a good spot to be. Okay, thank you. Jenny, now to the videotape for you. Jenny, my name is Oliver. I'm from San Francisco, California. This question is regarding AT&T. What do you think about buying AT&T as it pulls back to $29 a share so that it can collect a 7% annual dividend yield while waiting for the Warner Media Discovery Communications combination to come through. Thank you very much. Okay, Jenny. Thanks, Oliver. I think you're spot on with the way you're thinking about this. So I'm a holder, which means I'm a buyer, which means that at $29 right now, I'd be buying it. And I think here's what you get. You're exactly right. You get the 7% dividend yield, which they've said will, though, that they will maintain until the deal closes next year. After that, it'll be reduced, but you're still going to have a rich dividend, probably almost 5%. In the meantime, you have a company with very valuable assets and very valuable cash flows. No matter what metric you use, some of the parts, earnings power valuation, earnings, you know, whatever you want to use to value it, that company is cheap and undervalued. And I think as clarity increases between now and next summer, you're probably going to see capital appreciation in the shares too. Jenny, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for the questions too. Eamon Jabbers has breaking <laughs> news now on Amazon. EJ. Yeah, Scott, we're getting a response from Amazon now to the antitrust lawsuit filed this morning by the D.C. Attorney General. Here's what Amazon is saying in response. They say the D.C. Attorney General has it exactly backwards. Sellers set their own prices for the products they offer in our store. Amazon takes pride in the fact that we offer low prices across the broadest selection. And like any store, we reserve the right not to highlight offers to customers that are not priced competitively. The relief the AG seeks would force Amazon to feature higher prices to customers, oddly going against the core objectives of antitrust law. Now, remember what the D.C. AG is alleging here, Scott, is that Amazon is forcing third-party retailers to sign contracts when they sell their products on Amazon, and the contracts say that they're not able to offer any lower prices anywhere else. So the allegation here is that because there's fees and commissions and things built into the Amazon price, the retailers have to then charge that plus up on other sites as well, even their own websites, if they're going to sell them elsewhere. And they're saying that makes a floor overall that Amazon is raising for retail prices generally using their market position overall uh, to, in effect, bully those retailers to raising their prices elsewhere. Amazon here in this response, Scott, saying that's exactly backwards. Back well, over to you. OK. And how about how's this for timing? Uh, Amy, the DCAG is going to be on the top of the exchange within the next five minutes or so. So we'll see um, the response from the AG to what Amazon is now saying. Eamon Javers, thank you very much for that. We're going to step away quickly. We'll do final trades next. 
right, Jenny Harrington, you're going first in final trades because Pat Gelsinger, Intel, his first 100 days. How's he done? What's the report card? And what, what are you telling him in the conference for what lies ahead? Right. So I saw him speak yesterday at the JP Morgan Tech Conference, and this is a completely extraordinary leader with $20 billion of free cash flow a year of firepower available to him to make changes. This is a leader and a company that I would not want to bet against. Okay. Uh, there's Intel as we're watching that. And Josh, it just makes me think of NVIDIA, which as we come full circle from the beginning of our show where you mentioned it, reports earnings tomorrow. Right. I mean, the, the, the sexiness in the chip space has been NVIDIA and AMD, not Intel. Yeah, Intel basically Intel. is a money loser. AM, uh, Intel over not the last seven or eight years is a money loser. NVIDIA is up a thousand percent. It's not even close. It, the two shouldn't even be mentioned together. NVIDIA reports uh, this week and they should be uh, showing 82 percent. Uh, growth in earnings, which is unbelievable, 75% growth in revenue. Uh, AMD had great results, but they hit the stock after earnings. But the only reason why is because there's just not enough material to go around. There's a huge gaming chip shortage. That will obviously also affect NVIDIA uh, because they're in all the consoles too. So just be wary that that could happen. Okay. But there is no better position company than NVIDIA in, quick, in the chip space. Give me just a quick name for your final then, please. Invitation Homes uh, just broke out. I'm long. I think it's an inflation hedge. Okay. All right. Uh, Farmer Jim, what do you got? Boeing, it's getting new orders, it's delivering planes, and the stock chart is a perfect stair step going higher. All right. It's higher today by nearly 2%. Liz Young. Uh, Eurozone, I think it comes back as travel comes back, and the sector weights in those international indices are very cyclical heavy. Okay. Thank you very much. Good to see everybody. Thanks for watching. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.